Welcome to Burned by the Firewall, an Occamsec podcast. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Burned by the Firewall. This is Mike Krupka, and I'll be your solo host for today's show. Uh, I'm very excited to be joined in studio by Hawaii's very own Suzanne Barris-Lum. Susie will tell us a lot more about her background, but first I just want to say that it's a true honor to have the first female Army General from Hawaii join us on the show. So Susie, welcome. Well, aloha, Mike. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be on your show, and thank you so much for what you do to bring about awareness on various IT cyber issues. I think this is critically important today. Um, I, I do want to mention that uh, I'm actually not the first female for Hawaii, Mike, I'm sorry. I'm actually the first female of native Hawaiian ancestry. We've had other women who've been general flag officers from Hawaii, but not necessarily of Hawaiian ancestry. But thank you for that acknowledgement. I just recently retired after, um, you know, 34 years. So it's uh, certainly uh, great to be on the show with you. Well, fantastic. I apologize. It, uh, the changing of the word from from to of makes it makes a big difference there so i apologize uh no, but no worries. diving right in i think before the show you and i spoke about the importance of hawaii from a tactical and operational standpoint when it comes to cybersecurity. right um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your journey leading up to your your recent retirement from the service and sort of how your mission throughout those years tied back into cybersecurity? Absolutely, uh, that's a great question. So I was born and raised here in Hawaii, just a little personal background. You know, my mom is from Japan. My dad was stationed there. He's actually from Maui. And I joined as a private actually in 1986. Then I went into ROTC at the University of Hawaii and was commissioned in the Military Intelligence Corps. So when you talk about you know, the beginnings of cyber and the military intelligence corps back then, when we had um, signal intelligence units, electronic warfare was much different. Pre-computer, I saw this transition and change as I moved up as an intelligence officer in the army. I've been in all three components, active guard and reserve of the army. I, I, I think one of the significant highlights was I was a senior intelligence officer in Balad, Iraq, where we did use cyber was critical in terms of fusing information from all the intelligence, human intelligence, signal intelligence, uh, as well as uh, imagery intelligence for intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. So technology, the cyber realm was critically important, that security for fusing that intelligence information. I also uh, moved up to be the chief of staff for the Hawaii Guard, Army and Air, 5,000 I mean, soldiers and airmen. And uh, in that role, I actually participated in cyber development and a, and a proposal for cyber fusion in Hawaii. And that is because the Hawaii National Guard Adjutant General is the director also for the Hawaii Homeland Security. So uh, I, I participated in that as well. And then later on, I moved the last five and a half years I spent at Indo-Pacific Command. And that is really critical infrastructure is key. And I'll, I'll tell you in a, why in a minute. There, I was the mobilization assistant to the director of plans and policy. And then I moved up to be the mobilization assistant to the commander. So I worked for Admiral Harry Harris, Ambassador Harris from the Republic of Korea, as well as Admiral Davidson. And then we recently transitioned to Admiral Aquilino, Indo-Pacific Command. But there I was uh, the lead 
general officer for Hawaii, Guam, CNMI, and American Samoa. In other words, the Pacific homeland. And critical infrastructure protection is part of that. And key to that, of course, is the cybersecurity. As we know, we have moved to a, a computer-based critical infrastructure protection, which makes us, of course, vulnerable and makes us have to work together. I want to address, if I can, Mike, if that's okay, is Indo-Pacific Command for our audience. The Indo-Pacific Command is the largest and oldest combatant command in the United States military. It spans from the California coast to the west coast of India. 52% of the Earth's surface, we deal with 36 nations, 14 time zones, and four of the five national defense security challenges. That is the DPRK, North Korea, China, Russia, and violent extremism, as well as the fact that we have more natural disasters that occur in this region than any other place in the globe. So with those significant state challenges, our threats to our, our cybersecurity, particularly our critical infrastructure. Here in Hawaii, the Indo-Pacific Command Headquarters sits at Camp H.M. Smith. And within a six mile radius are all of its components, four star flags, Pacific Air Forces, Pacific Fleet, U.S. Army Pacific, Marine Forces Pacific, Special Operations Forces Pacific, as well as the Coast Guard here on this on Oahu, relying on the critical infrastructure of this island. There's no other state that you can move power. All of our telecommunications, water, all of the critical things that we need to ensure that we can defend forward the entire homeland here. We are, we are positioned forward. Hawaii is critically important as the crossroads of the Pacific. So cybersecurity becomes important. And I wanna mention also Guam and CNMI. That is where America's day begins. And the cybersecurity for all of the assets, the, the buildup on Guam, as well as the Commonwealth of Northern Marianas. And not to mention all of our forces in Japan and Korea, which are significant forward. So the cybersecurity of that connectivity, that communications for, from those vast distances is, is critically important. I think, you know, being here on Hawaii for as long as, as we have been, you know, we, we see those, those interconnectivities between all the different branches and it, it certainly is the gateway, right, to, to America from, from the West. So uh, really interesting answer and I appreciate that. On a lighter note, I want to bring it back to something that, that we ask all of our guests and, and guests that you know, including Jen, Jody, Connie, and Christine, uh, but we like to have fun and we like to also kind of find out about, you know, what makes you tick. So when, when you were growing up, when you were a child, what was your favorite piece of technology? Mike, that's a great question because, you know, I grew up in Waiwa where, you know, slippers was new technology because I <laughs> went barefoot. <laughs> and, you know, we had three stations because that's how old I am. And, and we would use aluminum foil on the top of the, the rabbit ear antennas. And so, um, you know, we still had record players. I luckily had a few records. And so the new technology for us was the portable cassette player because you could actually play, uh, you know, music. And, and when my dad got a used car from his uncle, it had an eight track tape in the car. That was so cool. And so we played Don Ho, we had Don Ho and we played Tiny Bubbles over and over again. And it, it was just really neat. And, I really didn't have computer actually courses until my senior year at IEA high school. It was one wow. week. It was MS-DOS. Yeah. So when I went to University of Hawaii, they did have computers, but I didn't have a personal computer. So I used the ones at school. 
Mm-hmm. And so I used a lot of typewriters. In fact, my journalism class, uh, I, my undergraduate degrees at, from the University of Hawaii in journalism, I used a typewriter. And in my senior year, I got an Apple and with a floppy disk. And when I went into the army, we had no PowerPoint. We used Harvard graphics. We printed out on a dot matrix printer, use a Xerox, put it on a transparency so you could put it on it so you could show the map and overlay. And we used maps and overlays to show terrain, to show um, distances, enemy threat, because this was the Soviet period, East and West and the Iron Curtain. So you had all of this. So I know I went a longer journey, but my childhood, I guess I look at it still when you're in college and first getting into the army, you're still a kid. So. Yeah. And I mean, I think that just shows how much has changed right over the last 10 or 20 years, even because a lot of those things you're mentioning, you know, harken back to my like early childhood as well. Cause I remember dot matrix. I remember MS DOS. I remember, uh, you know, the floppy disk drive and playing Oregon Trail on the, you know, the computers <laughs> at school and never having our own until maybe just before high school. So yeah, that's, that's a really fun answer. And uh, we, yeah, we, we like to ask our guests that. So we appreciate you sharing there. Um, before the episode, you and I were, were also talking about something that is near and dear to, to Hawaii and near and dear to uh, Cyber Hawaii, which is an organization that has helped to connect you and I here today. But uh, we were talking about information sharing limitations and, and how so many organizations try to accomplish uh, the mechanisms and putting the mechanisms in place to share information. However, a lot of them fail. So from your perspective, why, you know, why is information sharing so important? And you know, what do we have to change to really get to a place that it's more effective for everybody? Great question, Mike. And you know, this is an area that I have been, I'm passionate about, I've been working on, and I, I plan to still advocate for how very important it is. And I just sort of laid out to you just this one piece of the planet, Indo-Pacific region. You see how vast it is, how complex it is, how challenging it is to connect. Now, within the Department of Defense, you know, we have the Cyber Command and we have cyber protection teams. We have elements, units, all services that look to the protection of the Department of Defense. But as I mentioned, Department of Defense, our security of our homeland relies on the civilian critical infrastructure, civilian run private industry who Cyber Command, while has the mission to help, to coordinate, to ensure that our nation is secure, there are things in the way, barriers in the way, policies, laws that limit the ability of our Title 10 and Title 32 cyber protection teams to lay hands on our private infrastructure. Now, our adversaries know that the soft underbelly, and we like to say that because you know when you get to have a tank that comes over the hill, the softest part of a tank is its underbelly. Well, the underbelly really is our private industry because so they have a responsibility to ensure, of course, they're protected. And they, they know that because it's in their interest. It's in our, they're great patriots, but they can't do it alone if they don't know what they don't know. And unless we share that information in a timely manner in which they can take action, it, we, we, it, 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 you know, we give our adversaries the upper hand. And we're seeing that today in terms of why it fails time and time again. I, and I don't know that it fails. I know that, that the, 
the um, awareness is increasing. It's, it's events like this today, Mike, that you're doing. Um, Cyber Hawaii, Cyber Command, Department of Homeland Security, you know, starting out, um, of course, with their cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, you know, establishing that and trying to get partners to work together, um, information sharing for critical infrastructure with DOD, um, government, private industry, for all the 16 critical infrastructures. So, you know, there are many efforts, but it goes down to the one thing, trust, assurances that you will protect the data that, um, that secures my livelihood as a private industry. How do I know? Um, you know, bureaucratic rules that get in the way that are there for a purpose on security and concerns of past breaches. But at the same time, we got to think broadly. We got to think more creatively ways in which we can share this information. And I think of uh, the Kansas fusion cell, so cyber fusion cell. So we've developed, you know, critical infrastructure fusion cells, and we have one here in Hawaii. And, you know, it's great. You've got interagency participation, Department of Homeland Security, FBI, you know, uh, you know, the ports, Coast Guard, DOD, Hawaii National Guard. But, you know, the element that I think we could do better on, of course, is the cyber piece, but we need the resources. So, you know, here in Hawaii, I, I believe, and I say this, and I know Department of Homeland Security is working very hard, and it's not meant as a criticism, but I think awareness, and I think they know it too, it's the challenge of resources. How do you determine the security threat of a certain area? Is it based on just population? Because some would say that the population, 1.4 million in Hawaii, doesn't seem very significant. It's, it's equal to about Montana. But when you look at strategic significance of Hawaii, the investment towards information sharing critical infrastructure is much more significant when you look at what Indo-Pacific Command has to do in this region to defend not only Hawaii, but our homeland throughout. So I think we need to change, look at the policies in place that are barriers. We need to look at the laws that are barriers. And while we can say verbally, yes, we need to information share. And I think everybody's saying that now, we got to look hard at what those barriers are. And I think all of us working together to advocate and do the hard legwork and, and, and try to bring down those walls. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I know from the private sector, at least the, the word that you hit on that, that really resonates with me is trust. And, and that's, that's the hard part. It seems when you're dealing with businesses from different sectors is getting them to trust each other with that information in a timely manner so that you can, again, maybe mitigate and address some of those risks that, you know, you are experiencing together. So that, that's, that's always the key, it seems like anyways, on the private sector is how can you drive towards that trust and, and get there? And I think, like, like you said, we're, we are making some headway, but it is definitely a challenge. So um, we, will, we will definitely have to continue to monitor, you know, where information sharing goes in the future. Because again, lots of things can change and we've seen how, how quickly things can change in the IT landscape. So with that topic in mind, the topic of change, you know, we've had a lot of women leaders in IT come on the show. You know, we've talked about some of them just, just a, a minute ago. Um, maybe none as distinguished as you, but we've had a lot of them come on the show. So when you think about your stories and your experiences and your challenges as a, a fellow woman and a leader in IT, you know, can you share some of some of like what that experience has been like 
for you and maybe why you're so passionate about, you know, helping women in the IT community? Well, thank you for that question. And, you know, Mike, I got to tell you that uh, the other women are very distinguished as well. You're so kind though. I'm, I'm proud to be amongst Jen and Connie and, uh, you know, the, the whole group, Jody, it's wonderful. And I'm, thank you for your advocacy and asking this question. Cause I think, you know, representation matters. One of the things that president Biden just signed was the women, peace and security act, which is based on the UN security council resolution 1325, which is women's equal participation in security issues. Uh, not only as being considered as, victims, but actually victors, part of participating in solutions of complex problems. When I first came in the military, we didn't have a lot of women in IT, and we still are lacking in that area. In fact, according to the National Center for Women and Information Technology, only 25% of the tech jobs are held by women in the U.S., and 15 to 25% globally. In the, in the military, about 15 to 16%, depending on the service, are women in the military and even a smaller percentage of that are women in tech, but this is changing. You know, as, as we try to make these efforts on, on CompU girls that Cyber Hawaii is sponsoring, girls who code, a lot of different things. Um, you know, even our, our, our advertising in the services, you might see a high tech behind the computers, a female soldier, sailor, airman, or on a, on a carrier because sometimes it's hard to become what you don't see. And a lot of research has shown that the inclusion of women certainly has had positive impacts on the operational effectiveness of the DOD and also adds a new gender perspective for technology, not within the DOD alone, but throughout the world, whether it's coding software and other technology designs. And it was interesting, I, I read this article and it said, you know, Google's voice recognition software, which is meant uh, to be the best on the market really is only 70% less likely is 70% less likely to recognize a female voice than a male voice because it's trained on a voice database that is heavily skewed towards men. And we see another, you know, artificial intelligence within the DOD today is huge and all of our, our industry, I would say, you know, whoever can seize upon that will have the advantage and we see our adversaries doing the same. But it may seem gender neutral, but it's often gender blind. And those algorithms, you know, serve to amplify this bias. AI is still created by humans and often from data source, predominantly from men, based on men's profiles. For example, credit history, you know, it doesn't account if it's looking for people for certain jobs, if there's a, if there's a, a, uh, a gap because a mother went and had a child, you know, those kinds of things would be discriminatory factors and not, it wouldn't be able to dif differentiate facial recognition, voice recognition, and even physical safety tests. And we see that in the DOD as well. I remember uh, uh, Jamie Jameson is the first operational female F-22 pilot in the military. She had to actually delay her training because, you know, the face mask, uh, did not fit her face. So when you talk about structure and now using uh, technology to examine seatbelts, headrests, airbags, you know, all those things, it's really a lot of the data is based on men's physical bodies and seating. And that lack of gender perspective on women's physiques, 
um, whether they're pregnant or their chest, those measurements have, they said that 40 for, women are 47% more likely to be injured and 17% more likely to die than men in our car accident. And that's based on this article called Invisible Women, which I think is telling. So those are the things, that's why I think it's important that women are part of the solutions. And because the, really the world is made up of, of 50% women, no matter where. And I, I gotta use this quote from General Dempsey who wrote the book, Radical Inclusion. And it's, he's the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And he wrote this book, Radical Inclusion with Ori Brothman, who wrote the book, The Starfish and the Spider. That me, you know, and, and I love that book too, because it, it, it talks about leadership or things that you're doing, Mike, that if you cut off the leg of a starfish, it grows. So by sending this message and it will continue to grow these podcasts or sharing information, if you cut off the head of a spider, it dies. So if we don't all share information, it will die. So anyway, he said, when we undercut the contributions of one gender, we do so at our own peril, denying ourselves half the talent, half the resources, half the potential of the population. And as we approach future challenges, we must think rather than fight our way through. We need to be able to leverage all of the best thinking out there. And then that includes the IT world. I can only imagine how you know, frustrating it must be for, for a lot of women out there as they try to, to pave their way through through any career, let alone in IT. Year 2021, we're, we're still having this conversation. Um, based on your experiences, if you were to talk to young aspiring women and young aspiring uh, leaders in IT um, or in cyber or in the military, what, what kind of best practices or advice would you give them to sort of navigate the, the times that, that we're still in? I would say, if it interests you, you can do all things. Don't listen to barking dogs because if you stop every time you hear a barking dog, you're never gonna get to your destination. And I believe that, you know, this is not a, a woman's issue. This is a human issue that men and women, you know, if we look at humanity, we are all part of this. It has taken really to me, um, I say enlightened men who have championed these causes, including the commanders I've worked with for all men. And they've all championed these causes because they see the benefit just like General Dempsey. So for young women and men out there, help one another, look for mentorship. If you see talent, don't make, you know, don't let your bias get in the way really look broadly at the, the talent that's out there that young girls exhibit and don't discourage them. You know, comments that, you know, math or, or computers are for boys, ignore those comments. Those are just barking dogs that, and, and that something's wrong with you if girls are so interested in math and science and technology, we should be encouraging that. And I think we need to highlight, you know, I said earlier, it's difficult to become what you don't see. And if we don't highlight these women, so thank you, Mike, for highlighting the many women who are advocates or part of like Jody Ito, a lead at UH for information and technology. But a lot of people outside the military don't know about Rear Admiral Grace Hopper. You know, she pioneered the development of computer languages written in English rather than mathematical notation. And she actually started her tech career in the 1920s. She got a master's degree in 1930, 1934 from Yale. And one of the 
first high tech women admirals in the Naval Reserve. And she worked all the way in, well into her age, um, did some amazing things to change the technologies to in, enhance our own security in the US. And as a result, in 1996, the Navy commissioned the USS Hopper. And we see it transiting here throughout the Pacific and Oceania. And every time, and most recently, the first commander, female commander of the Hopper, USS Grace Hopper, is a female. And I'm so proud of her, Kate Dolly. Um, to it's a it's a destroyer, it's a it's a war fighting ship because that's really what she was. So anything is possible when we watch um, and we celebrate pioneers like Admiral Hopper. I think it's important for all of us to do that. Speaking of boats, uh, what I want to talk about next will will sort of tie into a quote uh, that refers to boats, but ransomware it's not getting any better right so uh, aside from the the rising tide of government stepping in and sort of lifting all boats and maybe doing so by limiting some some different freedoms that that we may have right now as americans um, within this problem set uh, do you have any insights or you know recommendations uh, about how we can get to a place to to solve this and, and mitigate some of these issues for, for end users, especially in the civilian sector. You know, Mike, going back to the starfish and the spider, right? The spider, if you cut off the head, if we're always looking like we saw after, um, you know, major natural disasters, you see pictures, people sitting on the side, waiting for the government to come in, save right. the day, sweep down, let's do it. And we have tried from a government, coming from that perspective, from a government, piece, but there has to be a meeting in the middle. That means each individual must do their part. Each organization must do their part to ensure the security. And I think cybersecurity infrastructure, security agency, you know, they're one, there are many resources out there um, that are, are offering resources on ransomware, where, whether it's providing organizations and people you know, alerts and statements, guides and services, webinars on how you can improve and protect yourselves from ransomware. We need to also, of course, network, collaborate and share. We've said that already, but I think we have to do it. We, we have to take responsibility. You know, we, we love the freedoms and independence and we are resilient people. America has always stood for those freedoms. And you know, the beauty, of course, that a democracy often has challenges because we can't make companies do things. We have to encourage them to do it. And, but I think we need to also share that ideal, the ideals in which we, this country has been founded on can become a vulnerability when we don't take independent response, individual responsibilities to protect what's not just about our company or individual, but it's about the safety and security of our country. Everyone needs to hear that. Everyone needs to do their part and go out there and not wait for Cybercom or DHS to come down. You have to reach out, you have to do it. And I think it's very, very important when we look out into the future, when we're competing against adversaries like Russia and the People's Republic of China. Yeah, certainly those two adversaries are, are, are very, very concerning, I would say from a cybersecurity standpoint. Um, and 
it's it's also very difficult to to get people to understand their their bigger picture and where they fit into that that the national security of their everyday jobs and that they are part of that vulnerable underbelly like you mentioned that's that is definitely a challenge that uh, a lot of companies deal with and, and getting that c-suite on board to to do the things that you should be doing the the basic things that keep us all safe before we get you out of here i know we're, we're coming up to to the end here um are there any sort of, you know, retired projects, if you will, that you're working on or anything cool that, that you want to plug or promote while, while we still have your time? Thank you, Mike, for that question. So um, I, I started Varislam Indo-Pacific Consulting, consulting advising on Indo-Pacific security issues, as well as providing, providing some, uh, you know, keynote speakers or webinars on leadership, mentorship, and women, peace, and security. I'm also a strategic advisor to the Military Affairs Council and um, have worked with um, STEM workforce development. Also, the Hawaii Defense Alliance um, is another part of the MAC, the Military Affairs Council, that's looking at DOD partnership, workforce development, diversifying our economy in Hawaii to not just on tourism, but how can it support, how can we build technical high-tech capacity to support future DOD investments or other investments, whether it's Google or Amazon or, or, or um, regional leadership in, in STEM. I, I did, I've been talking to Senator Missa Lucha from IEA Pro City. She's our state legislator and she has been working with principals at Pearl City and IEA and they've been looking at ways potentially of creating a, a technical academy so that would, we would be able to partner again with the University of Hawaii. And there's a lot of these efforts going on. How do we develop STEM from K through 12, our, our you know, post-secondary institutions as well, and then into the marketplace? And how do we bring back some of these high-tech leaders to come and invest in Hawaii? You know, I've heard there, there is that movement movers to sh and shakas, like bringing back high tech people to Hawaii or linking them back, whether it's now we have a new post COVID-19 uh, design, what might that look like to help Hawaii be a leader in technology for the region, not just Hawaii? Yeah, I, that's that's exciting stuff. I look forward to seeing sort of what what shakes out from from those efforts, both on your side and, and on some of the other sides that, that you'd mentioned there. I think getting everybody in, in, involved and trying to f solve the problem in Hawaii specifically of how do we keep homegrown talent here instead of you know them leaving and and building that up from from an early stage whether that's K you know K through 12 or whether that's uh, a high school program but but some way to to get the youth engaged early um, to to an, avoid those barking dogs, whether you're a guy or a girl and just go into the STEM field, even if people think it's it's not cool or whatever people might say out there. Um, it's, it's definitely something that uh, I know, um, you know, Jody at UH is trying to solve, obviously you and, and many others here in, in the state are trying to solve. So I'm excited to see what, what shakes out with that. And, um, you know, again, we were really excited to have you join the show with us today, Susie. Thanks for, thanks for your time. Thanks for your insight. And, and thanks for your message. So um, I think with, with that, it's a wrap for today's show. You know, we hope to see everybody again next time on, uh, on Burned by the Firewall. <laughs>